All right, we've got a full house today. Glad to see everybody. Um, sorry we ran out of food, but not really, because that means a bunch of you came today. So it's a good problem to have. However, like I said earlier, if you want to make sure you get the good stuff, it comes out at 12 every day. So as soon as you can get over here, come on over, enjoy lunch, sit, talk, chat. Use this as a great time to meet new people. I know we like to huddle at our tables with our friends, but it's always good to invite, especially if you see a new face. We want this group to be welcoming, and uh, you guys do a really good job of that usually. So uh, it's a great place. You know, make new friends, make connections, network, do all that stuff you corporate people do. And uh, those of you that are retired or, or whatever, just enjoy the food. But we're glad to have you. We've been doing this ministry. Uh, well, I've been leading this for, I think, about six years now. And then before that, my friend Steve led it for six or seven years. And, and Bruce Chris has been generous to host this every week and so the tip jar is for Ruth's for the uh, people in the back that come out and serve and fix the food and do their best to feed a ton of people that come every single week so you can show your appreciation for the meal by giving uh, tipping what you are able if you make a lot of money tip a lot of money if you don't make a lot of money tip what you can uh, proportional just that's the kind of the way God set his kingdom up to run and speaking of that too, if you miss a week, you can always go to Disciple Dojo website, discipledojo.org. And at the top of this, if you click on this, this says spiritual training, then it'll take a drop down menu, video teaching, podcast teaching, Roots Chris Bible study. You can click on any of those links and it'll give you either more information about this. If you want to forward this to somebody and say, hey, I go to this Bible study every week, come check it out, forward them the link through the website and that'll help get the word out about what we're doing. You can also catch up if you go to the podcast teaching. You can actually uh, subscribe in whatever format podcast you like, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or by YouTube if you want to watch the videos, which is why we record each week. So check that out. All of it is free and entirely available with no charge whatsoever. Uh, because of that, we need people to help subsidize that, to keep it free. And that's what this little green button at the top that says donate is for. You go there, you click that, and you can give a one-time gift. Or even better, you can earn your belt as a Disciple Dojo donor. And uh, you don't actually get a real belt. But you, there's white belt level donors, which is $10 a month, all the way up to black belt level donors, which is $100 a month. There's even corporate red belt donors, which is a thousand a month, but we don't have any of those. I'd love to get some though. Regardless, that helps fund this teaching ministry and it helps fund the refugee outreach ministry that I do on Tuesday nights. So I go over and I teach about 30 refugee, immigrant, and lower income kids here in Charlotte off Central Avenue, anti-bullying and self-defense through jujitsu. Uh, which is my other job and we're looking to we've got a new place that we're meeting now we're going to be teaming up with the Simmons YMCA which we're really excited about and hopefully if we are able to get the funding hint hint then we can offer daily or start to offer during the day women's self-defense class for the ladies over there and I'd really like to start a special needs jiu-jitsu class for people with the special needs um, the, there's a lot of kids in the community. When I went over there, I saw all kinds of kids, especially these kids helping out around the Y. And, and I was like, man, these kids could really benefit from this program as well. So all of that, though, requires uh, God opening doors and donors opening wallets. So pray for both of those things to happen because it's a really cool 
thing that you guys don't get to see on a Tuesday afternoon, but uh, it's a great work and I really am proud of it and passionate about it. But let's get to why you're here other than the food and that is Bible study. We're in the book of Judges. We're in chapter 8. This is the end of the Gideon cycle. Now if you've missed the previous sessions, that's fine. Hop on the website, listen to them. They're all 30 minute chunks so you could listen to, you could catch all the way up to where we are in Judges in a week uh, of commuting back and forth or walking your dog or walking on the treadmill or whatever you're doing. You can get caught up. But we're in the middle of Gideon and Gideon is who God raised up to save Israel from the Midianites, these eastern caravan raiders that would come in for seven years every season, swarm in like locusts, and just pillage Israel and take all of their goods and all of their food. So Israel was in a state of, of being oppressed for seven years. So we saw God raised up Gideon, very unlikely. Gideon made this comment. He said, I'm the least in my family, in my father's house. We're going to see what he meant by that exactly in this lesson today. But God raised up Gideon and said, yeah, I'm going to save Israel through you. I know you're the least. I know you don't have any strength or any might. We've seen the past two weeks, Gideon's character has been one of kind of being wanting to follow God, but being hesitant, being fearful. So he did tear down the pagan shrine that his dad had built. He, he was a pagan family. And he did tear it down, but he did it at night. So it was a little secretive. Uh, he, he gathered the troops. He mustered the troops. But then he asked God for two signs just to double check to make sure. Even though God had already told him and he wasn't trying to divine God's will, he just wanted some reassurance. God gave him reassurance. And then God gave him even more reassurance because he was still scared even with the troops. And God had him go down into the Midianite camp and hear a dream that basically said he's going to have victory. So God has done so much for Gideon who was this fearful, timid, when we met him, he was threshing wheat in a wine press. That's a key motif, threshing wheat in a wine press. You don't thresh wheat in a wine press, you stomp grapes in a wine press. You thresh wheat if you're trying to hide it from marauders and you're scared that they're gonna steal it. So everything about Gideon was cowardly. And then we see this transformation as the Spirit of God clothed itself with Gideon, as the text said, and we looked at that. It says that the Holy Spirit came upon her and the Spirit of Yahweh clothed himself with Gideon so Gideon became a vessel of God and that's the key in this story listen Gideon is not the hero Gideon it, you, you got to get that out of your minds it comes from a New Testament reading where the hall of heroes in the book of Hebrews and it mentions people like Gideon and Jephthah and so we don't ever read judges except in children's storybooks and so we go oh yeah these are biblical heroes no they weren't biblical heroes. And that's the point of the author of Hebrews is saying these men of faith, they did stuff only through faith. Not through their own abilities, not through their natural giftedness, and certainly not through their moral character. But rather through faith in God, God was able to do things. So it's not a blanket carte blanche approval of all the judges. And as we're seeing, the judges start good with Othniel and Deborah and Barak, but now they're starting, Gideon marks the turning point where the judges are starting to get a little ambiguous in their character. And then after Gideon, downwards, like downhill slope, black diamond, like straight down. And it ends with the worst of all, Samson. And that's a spoiler alert for some of you that wait, wait, Samson's the hero. No, he's not. We're going to get to that. But Gideon has had this major victory. So the last chapter, God supernaturally, Gideon did no fighting. We called last session on the podcast, The Art of Fighting Without Fighting. That's a Bruce Lee quote because Bruce Lee was awesome. And it, it's basically what describes the character. I mean, the chapter 
is it was fighting without fighting because there wasn't any fighting. God, Gideon, they broke the jars, they lit the torches, they yelled really loud, and the Midianites started fighting amongst themselves and, and fled. Then after that, once the armies fled down south, then Gideon called out the surrounding troops and this, the tribe of the Ephraimites who lived up in the hills and said, come down, give chase. You know, we put the army on the run. We won a miraculous victory. And now they're running back to Midian, back to the east. And so chase them, stop them at the Jordan River, and they ended up capturing two of their rulers, uh, Raven and Wolf, we saw last week, or Oreb and Z, but those are wimpy sounding names. Sounds better when you say Raven and Wolf. Um, they caught them and put them to death. And so now we're at the part, chapter 8, where it's kind of giving us the aftermath of this victory and what's going on. So the, the commanders have been caught and killed, but they're still, Gideon and his 300 men, it's, they won the battle, they, they drove Midian out, but it's not enough. We don't know why, but Gideon is still pursuing with his 300 men. Think like 300, Sparta. Ah, this is Sparta. Uh, like the, the 300 men pursuing the Midianites all the way across the Jordan into what would be modern day country of Jordan. And, and we wonder why. Why is he still pursuing them? He's, a, he's delivered Israel. What's going on? We're going to find that out. So, before that though, after they beat uh, Raven and Wolf and, and put them to death and brought their heads and displayed their heads. Remember, Judges is a gruesome time and it gives gruesome details, but that's how war in the ancient world worked. The Ephraimites asked Gideon, verse chapter 8, verse 1. Now the Ephraimites asked Gideon, why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? And they criticized him sharply. So now Gideon is a victorious leader, won a great battle, but the Ephraimites are like, wait, 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 why are you only calling us out now when you needed us to give chase? We should have been part of the main battle. We should have been part of getting the glory. But what was the whole point of God whittling down Gideon's troops to begin with? So that Israel wouldn't get the glory. That it would be God's glory. So the Ephraimites, and, and we're, this is not the last we're going to hear of the Ephraimites. They, they don't have a great track record in this book as it goes on. But they approach Gideon this way. Now Gideon, the leader, he's become from the timid scaredy cat to kind of a, a successful military leader at this point. And now he has to navigate diplomatically. So he answered them, What have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't the gleanings of Ephraim's grapes better than the full grape harvest of Abiezer? Now what does that mean? Well, Gideon's family and tribe, or clan rather, is Abiezer. So he's like, hey, the scraps, the gleanings, gleanings are what's left over in the field after you go through and gather everything. It's what the poor would come along and, and, and gather up. So it's like the scraps. And he says, hey, the, your gleanings are better than our full harvest. What does he mean by that? He says, uh, God gave Oreb and Zeb, Raven and Wolf, the Midianite leaders into your hands. What was I able to do compared to you? So in other words, he says, you got your glory. God destroyed you. It was in your hands that we caught and put to death the, the main two warlords in this scenario. So you've achieved glory. What, what can I, you know, what, what is what I did compared to you? Very diplomatic, very shrewd. He didn't rebuke them, which maybe he should have. But at this point, maybe not. Maybe a soft answer turns away wrath. Maybe a little flattery drops the uh, outrage. We've all had people come up angry at us with something. Sometimes it's good to give an answer that shows them, puts things in different perspective, and says, hey, 
what are you so mad about? Look what you've accomplished. Sometimes that's all people need to hear, and then they're happy. They think they've been slighted, and you can show them. No, you haven't been slighted, actually. Look what you've accomplished, or look what's happened. Or... So there's wisdom here. There's a shrewdness on Gideon's part. So he kind of passes this first test. Um, at this, their resentment against him subsided. Verse 4, Gideon and his 300 men. Now, they've back to the chase. Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan River and crossed it. Now they're out of Israel proper and into the Transjordan. He said to the men of Succoth, which is one of the towns there, give my troops some bread. They're worn out. I'm still pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. So now the, the head head honchos, so Wolf and Raven were kind of the warlords, but now Zeba and Zamuna, and Zeba means sacrifice, and Zamuna means like they don't exactly know what it means because it could be from a few different words. Um, so there's not a neat one-to-one -one translation like there was with Raven and Wolf. But Ziba and Zamuna are, are now, these are like the kings or the rulers, the head honchos of probably the Midianites and the Amalekites. So these are the, we see that Gideon's not satisfied with, with taking out the commanders, the warlords. He's now going after the rulers in their own territory, taking the fight to them. And so he stops at an Israelite town, Succoth, and this is in the tribe of Gad. And he says, hey, my men are starving. We're pursuing, you know, give us something to eat just so we can keep this battle going. His, his own countrymen. But now Succoth and, and the Transjordan, you've got to understand, for seven years they've been the bridgehead into Israel from Midian. So the Midianites and the Amalekites have come through the Transjordan to get to Israel, to raid Israel, and then come back. So the Transjordan has been bearing the brunt of all of the raids and all of the oppression. So they, have, they live in a constant state for seven years of fear over these Midianite kings. So now 300 guys come into town and hey, hey, help us out. We're going to attack the kings. The people of Succoth are like, what? You're, why would we ever do that? That's a death sentence for us. No, we're not going to help you out. And that's exactly what they say. Uh, he said to the men of Succoth, give us bread, for we're worn out and I'm still pursuing the kings of Midian. But the officials of Succoth said, do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zamuna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your troops? Now, when they say, do you already have the hands in your possession? In Hebrew, it says, do you already have the palms in your hand? That can mean one of two things. It could mean, do you already have the palms? Like, are you already bringing the kings back, like holding their hands, bringing them into captivity. Or, and this is more likely because we actually see it in Egyptian, I believe, and other ancient Near East depictions of war, the way that you would count troops that you killed was you'd cut their hands off after the battle. And so, proof of death would be the hands of these kings. And so, and there's, there's pictures and you can look in um, the Bible dictionaries and, and different resources where you can see reliefs of kings with like piles of hands. Um, and actually in modern era, there's a really evil, evil man named King Leopold of Belgium. We don't ever hear about him, but he's like Hitler on steroids. Uh, he killed so many more people in the Congo. But it's because it's the Congo, so we don't really care about that in, in the West. But one thing he would do is if they didn't meet their daily quota of providing him food, and this is in the 1900s, he would have their hands cut off. 
And so there's millions of Congolese with their hands cut off of King. Look up King Leopold sometime. He needs to be up there in the pantheon of evil people uh, with Hitler, Stalin, and Mao because he did some horrible things. But it's that kind of thing that he was talking about. They're saying, yeah, do you have their palms in their hand? Do you have, do you have their hands in your hand? Because unless we know that they're dead, there's no way we're helping you. Because that would be our own death sentence. So Gideon says, um, so why should we give bread to your troops? Then Gideon replied, just for that, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will thresh your flesh with desert thorns and briars. Threshing is the verb used. NIV says tear your flesh, but it's actually threshing. It's the same thing Gideon was doing when we first met him. He was threshing wheat. A little scaredy cat threshing weed in the wine press. Now he's telling people, I'm going to thresh you when I come back after this victory. So we're already starting to see a little change or a significant change in Gideon's mindset. He's on a mission. <clears throat> From there he went up to Peniel. This is where God had appeared to Jacob way back in Genesis. And, and he had that vision. That's why it's called Peniel, face of God. And made the same request of them. But they answered as the men of Succoth had. So he said to the men of Peniel, when I return in triumph, I'm going to tear down this tower. So apparently they had a tower, a, a citadel of some type. So he's, he's gotten his, his tired and hungry men going through the Transjordan have been turned down twice for provisions while they're pursuing these two kings. And so Gideon makes these two vows that he's going to, he's going to remember this and I'm going to come back and you're going to pay. Now Zeba and Samuna uh, were in Karkor with a force of about 15 elef of men or 15,000. Remember, elef can mean regiment or it can mean thousand. Take your pick. All that were left of the armies of the eastern peoples, 120,000 or 120 elef swordsmen had fallen. So they are down from 120 elef, thousand, to 15,000 or elef. So their forces have just been routed. This is about 150 miles further away. So Gideon is pursuing 150 miles on foot, give or take, uh, to reach these, the remnants of this battle. Gideon went up by the route of the nomads east of Noba and Yagbaha and fell upon the unsuspecting army. Zeba and Zamuna, the two kings of Midian, fled. So again, 300 guys fall upon the army. Same thing as before. We don't know the battle. It doesn't give us what happened. But we know that the, the kings fled for their lives. But he pursued them and captured them, routing their entire army. Gideon, son of Joash, returned from the battle by the pass of Harris. He called a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And the young man wrote down for him the names of the 77 officials of Succoth, the elders of the town. This is now he's gone back to the town that turned him away and said, do you have the hands in your hand? If not, get out of here. So he finds a boy in the town. He says, hey, who are the elders of this town? Write it down. So he gets the list of all the names of the elders. Then Gideon came and said to the men of Succoth, here are Zeba and Zomunah about whom you taunted me, saying, do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your exhausted men? He took the elders of the town and threshed the men of Succoth. Now, NIV says, taught them a lesson. That comes from a variant reading of the KJV, which reads this word as the verb to know. And so, to make known. Therefore, to teach. And so that's what they think it's a figure of speech. But there's other manuscripts that read the verb as to thresh. And to thresh and to know, the difference in those two verbs is one little diagonal line in one letter. So, not getting technical, but 
to thresh is probably the original reading, and that's what fits with the promise that he made beforehand. Um, so anyway, this is one place where NIV following the KJV uh, doesn't quite capture the nuance of what the original Hebrew meant. But he comes back and he threshed the men of Succoth, punishing them with desert thorns and briars. He also pulled down the tower of Peniel and killed the men of the town. Now, that's not what he said he was going to do. Now, that's the action of a king who's been slighted by a vassal. And this is a key theme. Gideon is going to start acting like a king in this chapter. Even as he specifically turns down kingship, his actions are going to be right in line with the actions of ancient Near East kings. And that's a downward slide, as we're going to see. So already, this is an ominous mark. He killed the men of the town. Then, he asked Zeba and Zalmunna, uh, the two kings that he had brought back. He said, and the Hebrew, he says, where are the men you killed at Tabor? And the NIV interprets that as, um, what kind of men did you kill at Tabor? But, but he's actually asking, hey, those men at Tabor, where are they? Or, tell me about those men at Tabor that you killed. Now, we don't know anything about this so far. This is the first we're hearing of Zeba and Zalmunna having killed men at Tabor. So this is a new piece of information. So now we're going to see now we're going to see why Gideon is doing what he's doing. So he asked them, "What kind of men did you kill at Tabor? Or where are the men you killed at Tabor?" Men like you, they answered, each one had the bearing of a prince. Literally, each one had the image of the son of a king. Is literally what it says in Hebrew and, and that gets rendered prince. But so they kind of kiss up to Gideon, "Oh, they were like you. They had the appearance of the son of a king." Gideon said, Gideon replied, those were my brothers, the sons of my own mother. As surely as the Lord lives, if you'd spared their lives, I would not kill you. Then turning to Jether, his oldest son, he said, kill them. Now we see why Gideon was so mad in his pursuit of these people. These are the kings that during those seven years of oppression, they had killed his older brothers. So when Gideon says, I'm the least in my clan, when the angel appeared to him in chapter 6 and said, mighty man of God, and he said, mighty man, why has God allowed all this to happen? I'm the least in my clan. His family had been massacred. All his older brothers had been killed by these kings. Now he gets a chance to enact family vengeance. He gets to be the avenger of blood and to, to establish lex talionis. And he should be the one to put them to death under ancient Near East law. He doesn't. He tells his son to do it. And here we see another not-so-favorable thing about Gideon because turning Jether, his oldest son, he said, kill them. But Jether did not draw his sword because he was only a boy and was afraid. So Gideon now, we're seeing his brutal nature. He's gone from oppressed victim to uh, we're going to see signs of oppression or at least, you know when people are bullied, or they're beaten down, or they're victimized, and they finally get power, you know how often they, in turn, use that power against people? You see it in societies, you see it in individuals, and you're starting to see that in Gideon here. And you're starting to see it. So he tells his son, so his, but his son's a boy, he's a little boy, he's like, uh, what? His dad just told him to kill these two kings back at their house. So this is, they've come back home now. It's not his son's job to do this. It's Gideon's job to do this. And Zeba and Zamuna, they taunt Gideon. 
They say, come on then, do it yourself. As is the man, so is his strength. And that's a, that's a proverb. NIV puts it in quotes because it's a proverb. And it basically means, hey, be a big shot if you're going to be a big shot. If you really are that strong, prove it. Be a man. You kill us yourself. So they're taunting to the end. These are the kings that have killed his brothers. So Gideon stepped forward and killed them and took the royal ornaments off their camels' necks. So these are camel raiding warlords and the royal emblems would be a crescent-shaped symbol around the neck of the camel made of gold or silver or some precious metal. So Gideon finally avenges his family in this section. Now we come to the part where things start to tank. The Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you've saved us from the hand of Midian. In other words, be a dynasty. Be our king. Now Deuteronomy, those of you that are here for Deuteronomy, back in Deuteronomy 17, we read about what kings were and were not supposed to do. In Deuteronomy 17, start in verse 14, read through verse 20 on your own, it says, when the Lord chooses a king for you. So first of all, the Lord was to be the one that would choose, excuse me, would choose a king, not the people. Secondly, it said the king must not acquire large amounts of gold for himself, and the king must not acquire many wives. Deuteronomy 17, 17. Read that section. Read Deuteronomy 17, 17. The king was not supposed to do certain things and was not supposed to be appointed by anyone other than the Lord. Now, the people come and they say, Gideon, be our king. Gideon gives a pious answer. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. Hold that line in your head in just a minute because we're going to see what he names his son. The Lord will rule over you. That's the right answer. Gideon had orthodox theology. He knew Deuteronomy and he knew that it was God who was supposed to rule over them. But, and he said, I do have one request. Each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was custom of the Ishmaelites to wear golden earrings. So give me your gold. Now already the reader of Deuteronomy is going, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Yeah, you turned down the kingship, but you're starting to do exactly what kings shouldn't do anyway. They answered him, we'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment and each man threw a ring from his plunder into it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels. 43 pounds worth of gold. This is a royal amount of gold. 43 pounds worth of gold rings, earrings from their victims. Not counting the, orna not counting the ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments. That's kingly attire. The purple garments worn by the kings of Midian or the chains that were on their camels' necks. They gave him all this. They get, they, he said, I'm not going to be your king. And they said, okay, here's your king stuff. Is basically what's happening. Gideon made the gold into an ephod which he placed in Orphrah, his hometown. What's an ephod? That's the garment that only the high priest could wear. So he doesn't claim the kingship, but he does establish his household as a priestly center, something that is absolutely 100% forbidden by Torah. And Gideon does that. And all Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. This is Aaron 2.0, the golden calf 2.0. And that's exactly what the narrator wants you to see in this, is Gideon is acting like Aaron did. 
Not full-blown idolatry. Remember when Aaron made the golden calf? He said, behold, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt, and now we're going to have a festival to Yahweh, even as He built them a pagan golden calf, which was the symbol of Baal, or the Egyptian gods. So Aaron was kind of pagan-ish. Gideon now is acting very pagan-ish and very king-ish. We're going to see it in this last section. Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land enjoyed peace 40 years. Jeroboam, and that's Gideon's other name, Jeroboam, son of Joash, went back home to live. He had 70 sons, and this is reminiscent of the 70 kings in chapter 1, verse 7, that had been killed. So 70 sons is a, the reader go, wait, last time we heard 70 sons, they were the 70 kings of the Canaanites. Yes, because the whole book of Judges is about the Canaanization of Israel. And Gideon himself has become Canaanized by making a false idol that's in the guise of the very thing that the high priest was supposed to wear, but he made it as an idol in his household so that people would come there to worship. He had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. Against Deuteronomy 17, Gideon takes many wives. His concubine, his concubine who lived in Shechem, not an Israelite, she was a Canaanite, also bore him a son who he named Abimelech. Abimelech is a Philistine Canaan name. And it, guess what Abimelech means? My father is king. Everything in Gideon's actions is saying that I am a, I am the, I'm the rightful king. And I'm establishing a dynasty. Even if I'm going to say I'm not really the king, because only God's the king, but really I'm the king. So give me your gold. Give me your women. I'm going to build my dynasty. It's exactly what's going on with Gideon. So his concubine who lived in Shechem bore him a son. He named him Bimelech. Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father, Joash, and Orpha of the Abiezrites. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Barith, and that means Lord of the Covenant or Baal of the Covenant, kind of a sham version of Yahweh who's supposed to be their Lord of the Covenant. They set up Baal-Bereth as their God and did not remember Yahweh their God who rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They also failed to show kindness to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, for all the good things he had done for them. So Israel's standing in their fate after Gideon is worse than it was before. The downward spiral continues. When it comes to leadership, leaders are judged on how well their people do after they're gone. Gideon 100% failed. He was a failure as a leader. He was a failure as a hero of the faith. And it's a darker day in Israel after him than it was before. And we're going to really see it next chapter because things are going to get Game of Thronish in the next chapter. Intrigue and Gideon's illegitimate son trying to build this dynasty that he thinks is his. Oh, it's, it's, gonna, it's bad. It's bad. So, Gideon, whatever you've heard in the children's stories or Veggie Tales or whatever, uh, he had a moment of faith. And God used him to accomplish something mighty. But God uses crooked things to draw straight lines all the time. And Gideon is no paragon of virtue and no one to emulate except in his dependence on God in that moment early in his career. But like the later kings of Israel, like Saul, like David, like Solomon, he's going to start high but he ends low. And his life is a tale of what not to do and what not to be. 
rather than what to do and to be. Two minutes over. Get out of here. Have a great week. We'll see you next week. Come early. Make sure you get some food. Have a good one.